Okay, so we are looking at uh, Mark chapter 13. It is a passage where virtually every verse is debated. Is Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD? Or is he talking about the end of time? Or is he talking about both of those things? Now, we can't look at all the, I'm sorry to say, we can't look at all the various interpretations that have been applied to this passage over the years, or we will be here until next Sunday, which I know you don't want. Instead, I'm going to tell you what I think Jesus is saying, because obviously I think it's right. I also happen to think it is good. It is good because if you are a Christian, when you see what Jesus is saying here, it can help you live a hopeful, faithful, fruitful life. And if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, when you see what Jesus is saying here, it will help you understand why you should become a Christian. But to start, I want you to look at how Mark begins, verse 1. As he, Jesus, came out of the temple, and since Jesus arrived in Jerusalem just a few days previously, it's the last week of Jesus' life, all of the action has been centered on the temple. But now he leaves it for the last time, and he heads out to the Mount of Olives. Now, if you know your Old Testament, if you know the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel describes seeing the glory of the Lord leave the temple, and where does it go to? It descends and alights on the Mount of Olives. It is a sign that God is abandoning the temple in in, in Ezekiel's day. And here we see Jesus leaving the temple for the last time, and where does he go? He goes to the Mount of Olives. But as he goes, one of the disciples looks back and says, verse 1, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And the temple was one of the architectural wonders of the ancient world. Wonderful, but doomed. Because Jesus replies, verse 2, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another, that will not be thrown down. Now, when Jesus, uh, just a few days previously, when Jesus cast out the buyers and sellers of sacrifices in the temple, he hinted that the sacrificial system on which the temple depended and the priesthood who offered up these sacrifices, they were living on borrowed time. But this is the first time that Jesus explicitly starts talking about the destruction of the temple. So when they get to the Mount of Olives and look out over Jerusalem and they can see the temple probably glinting, gold-plated, glinting in the the sunlight, four of the disciples ask him, verse 4, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? That's the question Jesus is answering. And if you look at it, it is in two parts. Firstly, when will the destruction of this temple that we are looking at take place? And secondly, what will be the sign that that is about to happen? Two questions about the same event. And what we're going to do is we're going to follow the structure of Jesus' response but we're still going to see three things. Okay, firstly, be on your guard. Secondly, be hopeful. Thirdly, be faithful. So firstly, be on your guard. 
And in verses 5 to 13, Jesus answers the first part of their question. When will these things be? When will the temple be destroyed? Except if you look at it, he doesn't answer it the way you might expect him to. He doesn't bring out his iPhone, doesn't bring out his, his agenda, doesn't bring out his calendar and start discussing dates with them. Instead, he tells them things that they're going to see happening or stuff they're going to personally experience in the build-up to its destruction. But I want you to see is just notice how he introduces these things. Verse 5, see that. It's an imperative. It's exactly the same imperative he repeats in verse 9, be on your guard, and verse 23, be on guard. Verse 5 again, see that no one leads you astray. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus' major concern is not that they have a timeline of events. It is making sure that they are alert to the fact that events or people or personal experiences could lead them down the wrong track. And first up are false messiahs, men who come saying, verse 6, I am he. They need to be alert to that, Jesus says, because those guys will lead many astray. In fact, if you look, Jesus considers this threat to be so significant that he returns to it in verse 22. It is the only warning he does return to. And in verse 22, he adds the negative influence of false teachers. And if you think about it, the New Testament letters, all of which were written before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the New Testament uh, letters give repeated examples of false teachers infiltrating churches. And the book of Acts and contemporary historians of the time, like Josephus, document multiple, at, at least four men who claimed to be the Messiah and led popular uprisings. So false messiahs, false teachers. Then in verses 7 to 8, Jesus warns them that they will hear of wars and rumours of wars. And again, he was right, wasn't he? Between Jesus saying this around 30 AD and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, there were wars in Armenia, Parthia, Britain, Ptolemaea, Tiberia, Mauritania, and finally Judea with tens of thousands killed and hundreds of thousands displaced. But, Jesus tells them in verse 7, when you hear of these wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Think about that. If wars were not going to be the sign that the end of the temple was near, that's not the final sign, why does Jesus raise them? Why does Jesus raise them and tell them not to be alarmed by them? It's obvious, isn't it? Wars are alarming. Wars frighten us. We hear about them and we worry about our own safety. Will it spread? Will Putin go nuclear? What will this mean for us? Will, will we get caught up in it? And as one commentator puts it, when something appears to threaten your life, you can be tempted to think that the whole world is ending. But Jesus says, 
wars won't signify the end of the temple, let alone the end of the world. These things must take place, he says. They are the tragic, normal course of a world that has turned its back on God. They're going to happen in such a world as this. Then in verse 8, Jesus says, there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. And between AD 48 and AD 67, Philippi, Judea, the whole region of Asia Minor, and finally Rome itself were hit by earthquakes. And as for famines, Rome suffered in 41, Judea in 46, before the empire-wide famine of 51 AD. Now, when... I mean, maybe you've heard somebody say this, you know, when an earthquake um, devastates a region, you may have heard someone say something like, oh, that's a sign Jesus is coming back soon, yeah, and, and, and link it to, to this passage, or, or talk about how, you know, earthquakes will increase before Jesus' return. But Jesus isn't talking about uh, his coming in this bit. He's talking about the destruction of the temple. And his point is that they're not a sign. Verse 8 these are but the beginnings of birth pains. It's an image that the Apostle Paul picks up on in Romans 8. These things are evidence of creation groaning. A creation that has been subjected to futility because of sin, longing to be renewed, longing for the unveiling of the children of God and the return of the King. And in verses 9 to 13... Jesus tells them that they will experience persecution from three different areas, from very religious people, from civil authorities, and from their own families. And again, he tells them, be on your guard, be prepared, because this is going to happen. And the reason, he says, verse 9, is for my sake, to bear witness before them you see, Jesus was opposed by all of those three, wasn't he? He was, he was opposed by very religious people. He was opposed by the civil authorities. He was opposed uh, by his own family. So it is no surprise that his followers will be as well. And once again, the New Testament documents the multiple levels of opposition that the early church faced. And yet, before the temple's destroyed, and despite all of that opposition these disciples are going to face, Jesus says, verse 10, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And you might hear that and think, oh, okay, well, even if all the other things that Jesus mentioned came true before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, that one didn't. There's no way that you can claim that the gospel was preached to all nations before the fall of the temple. Jesus must be talking about the end times, the end of time. Except that is exactly what Paul does claim happened. Paul says that's exactly what did happen. Writing between 50 and 60 AD, Paul could say that the gospel had been proclaimed in the whole world, in all creation under heaven that it had been made known to all nations. Because the word for nations here in Mark 13 is tar ethne, which can mean Gentiles. It can uh, mean different people groups. It can mean people living in the countryside as opposed to the city. 
And so Jesus probably does not mean every single nation under the sun without exception, but that before the temple is destroyed, the gospel is going to be proclaimed to a multitude of nations and people groups. And that most certainly did happen. And before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, the gospel had spread across the entire known world, from Spain in the west to India in the east, from Scythia in the north to Ethiopia in the south. And so, even though they are going to face opposition, and they shouldn't be surprised by that, Jesus tells them, hey, do not be anxious. Because the Holy Spirit will give you the words that you need to bear witness to me when you need them, even when you are under pressure. Think about that. Think about yourself. Think about Mark's first readers, because Mark wrote this to the church uh, for the Christians, for the church in Rome around 60 AD. Jerusalem had still not fallen but they were already experiencing increasing opposition for their Christian faith and for their loyalty to Christ. And within a year or two of Mark writing this, they were being outright persecuted under Nero. And because they stayed loyal to Jesus, many of his first readers, our brothers and sisters in the past, paid for their loyalty to Christ with their lives as some of our brothers and sisters are doing today. And through Mark, Jesus is saying to them and to us, don't be alarmed by that. Be prepared for it. Expect opposition, but know that God has you in his hands. In verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. So stay faithful for as long as it takes and God will save you doesn't mean he'll save your life. You might lose your head, but not a hair of your head will be lost. Okay, but then in verse 14 comes the sign that is it. Everything else, false teachers, wars, earthquakes, famines, persecutions, they are the tragic normal of human history or the normal of the Christian life. This one is different. And it is Jesus' answer to the second part of their question, the sign that the destruction of the temple is about to happen. It's when they see, verse 14, the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be. What is the abomination of desolation? Well, the abomination of desolation means something abominable. Okay, no prizes for that. It means something sacrilegious, something that defiles the temple. And the first person to use this expression is the prophet Daniel. When he foresaw, when he foretold what Antiochus Epiphanes, the Greek leader, would do, that he would set up a pagan altar in the temple in 167 BC, and he sacrificed pigs on it, sacrificing pigs on a pagan altar in the temple. That was Daniel's abomination of desolation. And Jesus is saying, when you see something like that, when you see something like that defiling the temple, verse 14, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. That'll be the signal 
That will, when you see something like what Daniel saw, when you see the temple being desecrated, that's a signal to get out of Jerusalem because it is about to be destroyed. So what was it? Well, there are a number of contenders. I'll give you the two most likely, two standout ones. The first is the Roman general, soon to be Emperor Titus. And having, he was in charge of the um, Roman uh, army laying siege to Jerusalem. And having finally broken through the wall, Titus entered the temple. He entered the most holy place and he took a prostitute with him. While outside, the Roman legions erected their standards, their pagan emblems and sacrificed to them in the courts of the temple. Is that it? Well, the only problem with that being the abomination of desolation is Jesus says the abomination of desolation would be a sign telling the Christians in Jerusalem to flee because Jerusalem's destruction is near. And by the time Titus entered the temple, Jerusalem, it, it was too late. The destruction has already come. So I think the most plausible candidate, interestingly, is not pagans at all, it's Jewish people the zealots, the Jewish militants, who in AD 67, at the beginning of the war with Rome, occupied the temple. They murdered the priests and chucked the rest of the priests out. And they desecrated the place. They used it effectively as their military headquarters, laying, uh, taking control of it. And the chief priest of the time, Ananus, wrote, it would have been far better if I had died before seeing the house of God full of countless abominations and its sacred precincts crowded with those whose hands are red with blood. And Eusebius, the church historian, tells us that it was while all of this was going on that the Christians in Jerusalem undertook what we now know as the flight to Pella. They, they, they left Jerusalem for Pella in what is now Jordan. And so they escaped the suffering that would come on Jerusalem. And it's that suffering that Jesus describes in verse 19. For in those days, in the days and the time building up to the destruction of the temple, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Now, Jesus is, I think, Jesus is not describing there a great suffering at the end of time, whether or not there will be an increase in suffering at the end of the time. That's not, I, don't think, I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. The word translated tribulation is the word thlipsis. It is used 45 times in the New Testament. It is translated variously as affliction, suffering, anguish, burdened, persecution, troubles. And virtually every time it is used, it refers to the current reality of life as a Christian. That thlipsis is simply what marks the normal Christian life between the first and the second comings of Christ. It's why New Testament scholar Greg Beale says the great tribulation begins with the sufferings of Christ on the cross and is now shared by all believers. It's why in Revelation 1 verse 9, John the Apostle describes himself and his fellow Christians, you and me, as partners 
in the tribulation, in the thlipsis, and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Now again, you might hear that and think, sure, but Jesus says the suffering will be unlike anything that has happened before or after. So what about the Holocaust? What about Stalin and you know, his purges? What about Pol Pot? Surely Jesus is pointing to something terrible at the end of time, at the end of history. Except the way Jesus describes this is a standard way the Old Testament writers describe the judgments of God. The plagues that fell on Egypt, the judgment that fell on Judah at the time of the Babylonians, the judgment threatened in the time of the prophet Joel are all said to be unlike anything that has happened before or will be to come. Because there is a sense in which God's judgments are always unequaled. But also, if you know your history, the siege of Jerusalem was horrendous. And Josephus, the Jewish historian who was with the Roman forces, who was there, documents it in horrendous graphic detail. To persuade the city to surrender, the Romans crucified any escapees, erecting their crosses around the city, around the city walls, so that everyone, all the defenders inside, could see them. In fact, Josephus says, they crucified so many, up to 500 a day, that they ran out of wood. While inside the city, there was infighting between the various Jewish factions. There was murder, there was famine, there was disease. In fact, the famine got so bad that Josephus records a mother killing and cooking and eating one of her own children and offering half of the body to others. And when the walls were finally breached, the Romans massacred the survivors. And Josephus describes the, the streets flowing with blood. One million were killed, he said, and 97,000 enslaved. Now, even if Josephus's numbers are exaggerated, the tribulation, the suffering, the thlipsis was horrendous. It's why Jesus says in verse 20, if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would survive. But God did cut short the days. The siege lasted only, only for five months, short for siege warfare. And he did it, Jesus says in verse 20, for the sake of the elect whom he chose. Because even in the carnage of Jerusalem's destruction, God knew who were his. Okay, what's that got to do with you? If verses 5 to 23 are all about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, does it have anything to say to us? My answer to that would be absolutely. Firstly, it tells you, hey, fix your eyes on Jesus. Ask yourself, why was the temple torn down? Because Christ is the ultimate temple. He's the place where heaven and earth meet. Why did the sacrificial system come to an end? Because Christ is the full and final sacrifice for our sins never to be repeated. 
Why are there no more priests offering sacrifices? Because he is our ultimate great high priest. He's the one who has secured our eternal access to God. So I would say to you, if you find yourself interested in the end times, just check your heart. Check your heart. Are you more excited by the various scenarios of how things might possibly play out or in the glories and the grace of Christ? Secondly, as Jesus says here, be on your guard, be prepared. You will face opposition for being loyal to Jesus. We were talking in our home group, we've got a number of school teachers in our home group. And if you're gonna stay faithful to the Lord Jesus, you are going to face opposition. Paul writes to Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a normal part of the Christian life, so don't be surprised by it, but keep going to the end. Thirdly, be on your guard against false prophets. It's the only warning Jesus returns to twice because the greatest danger is not opposition. The greatest danger is not what our secular leaders are up to. It is false teaching. And tragically, on this subject of the end times, there is a long and sorry history of people failing to take Jesus' warning seriously. And instead of reading this text, for example, in its historical context, they look for fulfillments in their recent past or their present, and they have got into all sorts of trouble for doing so. And so fourthly, hey, be witnesses not speculators. Our job is not to speculate about the end. Our job is to proclaim Christ. Just prior to his ascension, the disciples asked Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus replied, it's not for you to know times and seasons. Instead, in the power of God's spirit, they were to be witnesses to the life, the death, the resurrection, the rule and the reign of Christ. And so are we. So, be on guard, but secondly, be hopeful. And you'll be glad to know the next two points are shorter. <laughs> Be hopeful. And in verses 24 to 27, Jesus says that people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with power and great glory. Now, before I tell you what I think Jesus is saying, there are good reasons for thinking that Jesus may still be talking about the destruction of the temple. And I'll tell you why. It's not what I think, but I'll tell you why. When he says in verses 24 to 25 that after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will, got, will not give its light, he is using exactly the same kind of cosmic language that the Old Testament prophets used to describe God's judgments on earth. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, they all use identical or similar words to describe the fall of Babylon, Samaria, Egypt, 
or Jerusalem to Babylon. They all use this cosmic language for these in time on earth judgments. You know, we might say that, man, that was earth shattering. They would say the heavenly powers are being shaken. Then, when Jesus talks of the Son of Man coming on clouds, he is referring to Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. In that vision, in which direction is the Son of Man going? The Son of Man is ascending to God. He is going towards God to be vindicated by God. He is not coming down to earth. And the destruction of the temple was vindication of Jesus, that he was who he said he was. And if so, if Jesus is still talking about the destruction of the temple, then in verse 27, where Jesus says, the angels will be sent out to gather the elect. What is that word angels? It's the word angelos. You could translate that as messenger. That's what the word means. So it could mean that Jesus is saying that the messengers are going to go out, the church is going to spread, and as they do, they are going to preach the gospel and bring in God's people. And yet, okay, for two reasons, I think it is more likely that Jesus has shifted subjects. Firstly, in verse 23, Jesus summarizes what he's been saying already about the temple's destruction. He sort of brings it to a close. Verse 23, be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. And secondly, in verse 24, he talks about what's to come after the suffering of Jerusalem and during the time when suffering is a normal part of being a Christian. Verse 24, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. I mean, if you think about it, the, there's many ways in which the temple was a cosmos, the cosmos in miniature, the meeting place of heaven and earth. And so it's no surprise that Jesus would tie its destruction, the end of the temple, to the end of all things and the beginning of everything else. So whether when Jesus talks about you know, the sun being blotted out, the moon, stars falling, whether he is talking about seismic changes in the world order, or literally the fabric of heaven that crumbles, Jesus says, the son of man will return. And when he does, as one commentator puts it, there will be a radical upheaval in creation. And our old world order of days and nights and sun and moon will end. And Christ will make everything new. And the tribulations of this life, the tribulation that you're experiencing, whether in your family or your own health or in your workplace, this suffering will be history and he will wipe away every tear from every eye. Because while Daniel 7 shows the Son of Man coming to God to be vindicated, in Acts 1, when Jesus ascends and goes to God the Father, the angels, says, the angels say, yes, and you will see him come again in like manner. Jesus says, verse 27, he will send out the angels and gather his elect. Because if an army prides itself on never leaving its wounded on the battlefield, Jesus promises that in all the opposition you face for him, he will never forget you. So whatever you're experiencing now, whatever thlipsis is for you at this moment, 
Whether you die before Christ's return or you are alive at his return, the outcome is the same. The day is coming when you will be with Christ. And Paul says that is far better. And that means if you're a Christian, as you see the world being shaken, maybe even as your life is being shaken, you can be full of hope. What if you're not yet a Christian? What if you hear this stuff about you know, the idea of Christ's return and you struggle with that, or you struggle with the idea that he is coming to judge and to put everything right? What does this say to you? I would say to you, look at the injustice of the world. Don't you long for that to be put right? Or maybe even just reflect on the harm that has been done to you. Deep down, don't you want justice to be done? Atheism and secularism can never give you that. They can never give you a promise of justice because they cannot give you a judge or a final judgment. And where does that leave you? Either in despair because people can get away with it or... If you want justice, you've got to take matters into your own hands. You've got to get your own back in this life. And that makes you the judge. But what does that do? That just continues the cycle of harm and violence. Only Christianity can give you the hope and the certainty that every wrong will be righted and justice will be done. Because one day... The judge is coming back. So be on your guard and be hopeful. But finally, guys, be faithful. And in verses 28 to 37, Jesus revisits first the destruction of the temple and second his return. So if you look at the whole structure of the chapter, it's destruction of the temple, his return, destruction of the temple with an illustration, his return with an illustration. He gives an illustration now for both. First, the temple, verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know summer is here. In other words, hey, when the tree starts sprouting, it's a sign. Summer's coming. Just so, verse 29 when you see these things, same word the disciples used in their question about the temple, when you see these things, you know that it is near at the very gates. Okay, so again, when they see the abomination of desolation, they know that the fall of Jerusalem is coming, so flee, and they did. And then he says, verse 30, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. In other words, the destruction of the temple will occur within a generation. And by the summer of AD 70, one generation after Jesus said this, the temple was no more. But if the temple won't last, neither will heaven and earth. Verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Because the words of Jesus are more enduring than creation itself. And there will be a day, Jesus says, when heaven and earth do pass away. Verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Now, up until now, Jesus has been speaking in the plural. 
of these things, of all of these things, and of these days. But now he is talking about a single day and a single hour, the day when he returns, the day when heaven and earth are renewed. And while there will be a sign before the temple's destruction, there will be no such sign before his coming. No one knows that day when that day will be. He says, only God the Father. Which means, since the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, it could happen at any time. So, verse 33, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. And to drive that message home, in verses 34 to 36, Jesus uses a parable. It's of a man going, on, you know, going away on a journey, leaving home, and he leaves his servants in charge of their work. And they have no idea when he's coming back. But when he does come back, he wants to find them at their posts, ready and working. And these first disciples... And you and me, guys, we're the servants, and Jesus is the master. And as we wait for his coming, we should be faithful in everything he has given us to do, and do it in the knowledge and the expectation that he could return at any moment. Now, why not give us a sign telling us that his return is soon? I mean, he does for the temple. Why not for his second coming? Well, Athanasius, one of the great fathers of the church from whom we have the Athanasian Creed, he said, if we knew the future, we would easily be tempted to postpone human seriousness and delay all decision-making. In other words, we'd say, hey, the sign hasn't come yet. Yeah, the sign hasn't been fulfilled. I can take it easy. I've got plenty of time. I'll get serious about this faith business when I see the sign coming. And we'd live like that. But when you know that since AD 70, Jesus could return at any time, boy, that does something for the way that you live. In 1 Thessalonians 5, having said the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, Paul says, yep, so we don't live like people of the night. But, verse 8, since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation, so that we might live for him. And James says, it'll even change the way you talk about others. James says, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, the judge is standing at the door. Imagine it. At home, speaking to your husband or your wife or your colleagues at work or talking about other people. If you knew that Jesus could walk in at any moment, there are some things you probably wouldn't say, aren't there? So, being prepared for Christ's coming is not trying to predict dates or interpret signs. It is about letting your light shine. It's about being his witnesses to our friends and our neighbors. It is about living out the Christian virtues of faith, hope, and love, and doing that together. So, be on your guard, Jesus says. Be hopeful, and as you wait, be faithful.
Let's pray.